you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Morning, church. Lovely to be here, and it doesn't seem that long ago that we were having to do this over Zoom, so just great to see everyone's smiling faces. Okay, <clears throat> so yeah, First Peter chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you too, Chris. That accent would really help my preaching. Well, City on Hill, good to see you again. Long time no see. Uh, and today we are going to dive into this passage as we turn to episode three in our Sojourners series. If you aren't yet in the text, now is your last chance. Please come and join us. It will be on the screen behind me if you don't have it open in front of you. Let's pray together as we prepare our hearts to receive God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this moment. We thank you that we get to gather around your word because the Bible, your word, is, is not mere, mere speculation about you, but rather your revelation to us. And we praise you for your mercy in revealing yourself to us and revealing your plan of redemption. And so, Lord, we pray that, Jesus, you would be big for us today. Help us see you. Help us look to you. Help us follow you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask for your help to do that. Be with us now, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we are going to continue in First Peter. And what I love to ordinarily do is have the Bible in front of us and go through verse by verse to, to follow the logic of the author, because that's how we get to the, the meaning under the text. What is the author's intent here? What does he mean to say? But today we're going to do something slightly different, because as you heard that Bible reading uh, read out for us, perhaps you realize that, hey, this whole passage is about kind of one big theme. Peter has just told us last week that we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. He's told us that those who have been born again to a living hope, those who are elect exiles, that we're meant to have a particular loyalty and love for other people who have been born again to a living hope, for other people who are elect exiles. And so he calls God our Father, and that we're meant to see ourselves as brothers and sisters, Christians are brothers and sisters, 
And so his next, le- lo- next logical step is to start telling us about this family that we're now in. So today we're going to talk about the church. I've shared before that I grew up going to church. Uh, even more than that, you could say I grew up in church, not literally the building, but grew up very much a part of a church. My dad was a Baptist minister. His dad was a Baptist minister. His father-in-law was a congregational minister, which is what they called Baptist churches before they became known as Baptist churches. And so it would be true to say that the church in, in, in general has been one of the most shaping influences in my life, personally. And so I have seen a lot. And as I think back on my experience with the church, I have seen a lot of just glorious things. I've seen people's lives transformed from a life of promiscuity or drug abuse, idleness, addiction, meaninglessness. I've seen people completely transformed, to have their hearts come alive as they've trusted in Jesus and started living fully for Him. I've been a part of a church where a young woman came to church with a scan of her brain that had a brain tumor on it. And the church rallied around her and, and prayed, Lord, would you please have mercy, please heal. And she's come back a few weeks later with a scan of her brain with no brain tumor on it. I've seen families, singles, widows, foster kids, adopted kids, taken in, cared for, supported, and loved. At our own church, we've had, we had people rally around to, to buy a new car for a lady who needed it. I've been a part of a megachurch which has blessed an entire housing commission estate of flats and provided products and food and bringing joy and positive memories to youth and kids who were doing it tough. I've seen the homeless sheltered and fed. I've seen, as we've talked about already, new churches sent and planted. I've been part of baptism services where we had kind of, as the staff, had to scramble to find new clothes for the people because they wanted to get baptized but didn't bring any. I've seen people remarkably reconciled from like there being no hope to reconciliation. I've seen elderly men and women spend decades and decades in the same fledgling church, showing up again and again, giving, serving, loving, encouraging, and essentially keeping the church going off their own bat when there hasn't been anyone to lead. The church is glorious. It is beautiful. And at the same time, I've seen a lot of garbage. I've seen many people hurt by the church. I've been involved in uh, some evangelism at the Mind, Body, Spirit Festival that happens uh, twice a year in the exhibition centre in the city. And I'll never forget when I was just how uh, interesting it was and how painful it was to start to engage with somebody. And then as soon as they heard that you were a Christian or from a church, they would become visibly enraged and visibly upset as it triggered memories of hurt and baggage and mistreatment that they'd received at the hands of their church earlier in their life. Perhaps we've all heard of the the historic child abuse that's happened. Some more being revealed. I've seen relationships broken and great betrayal. 
I've seen husbands leave their wives, wives leave their husbands. I've seen people drift away, completely disinterested. From my own family's experience, I can still remember where I was sitting as a 10 or 11-year-old when uh, a couple of, of deacons at the church that my dad was pastoring burst into the family home and started shouting at my dad over a decision that they, dis- they disagreed with. I know my own grandma had a mental breakdown because of the pressure she was feeling being the wife of a pastor at my grandfather's church in New Zealand. And at the same time, I know of pastors who have made other people break down and deconvert and leave the church. Some have committed fraud and stolen money. Others have run off with members of the congregation. Perhaps worse are those who do that and then are restored a couple of weeks later. I've heard heretical teaching and I've had to walk out of some church services. I've seen church politics put before love. And so the church is a mess. The church is beautiful and broken. The church is glorious and actually also holds a lot of garbage. And so we would be forgiven, especially as 21st century people, kind of reared, discipled into expressive individualism, we'd be forgiven for asking, dude, what's with the church? And Peter here has called us last week to, to love one another, to love the church. And so today we're going to hear why that is. We're going to look at the text, but instead of moving through it line by line, we're going to use the text to answer some questions. Who is the church? What is the church to do? What does it mean for me, for you, for us? And so let's start with the question, who is the church. Peter starts this passage this way, he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to quote some of the Old Testament, we'll get to that in a moment, but then he ends this thought with, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it's good to remember as we read that, that Peter is writing to a kind of a, a bunch of second-class citizens in the backwoods of the Roman Empire, which is at this point modern-day Turkey. And so people in this time were seen as kind of weird and quirky and there were people that of many of the surrounding culture were starting to become increasingly suspicious of these new Christians. And Peter here is telling them just how meaningful what it is that God is doing amongst them. Peter is telling them just how glorious a work God is doing with them. That they're living stones with whom God is building a spiritual house. That they might be a holy priesthood. They're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now, that sounds very very lofty, very meaningful already, but it becomes even more meaningful when we realize where Peter is getting this kind of language from. 
Now, last year as a church, we went through the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible. And Exodus, the big idea here is that God is faithful to His promises. Because in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God promises to build a family. God promises to build a people, to build a nation through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. But in Exodus, we find that this family that he started to build is enslaved in chains in Egypt. And so God has to miraculously intervene to be faithful to his promises. And he does so. He he powerfully delivers them. He sends plagues. He parts the seas. He provides water and manna and protection. And then these people who have been freed, and, and it's so obvious that God has done all the work to free them, they're gathered together. And they gather together before God, before a mountain. And they have the defining the relationship conversation where God speaks to them through Moses. And he says this in Exodus 19, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You know, often when we're reading the Old Testament, isn't it? Because it's there in the Bible. It's like written down for us, enshrined in the pages of Scripture. It's very easy for us to link and draw the connection between what's happening here and God's activity. Because we read directly that that God is the one who saved and set apart His people. that, That God has commissioned them to serve Him. We read about their whole lives have been radically disrupted and and transformed and chained uh, from going from enslavement to Pharaoh to now to serve God. It's easy to see God intervene and redirect their steps Himself to protect, provide and point them to His promises. But fast forward 1,400 years and here Peter is saying that the same things that were true of them are true of these elect exiles. And fast forward 2,000 years beyond that, Peter is telling us today that, that the same things that were true of Old Testament Israel before that mountain are true of you and me. You see, there are some things that are different between life with God in the Old Testament and life with God in the New or in our, in our day today. We get the joy of having being this side of the Messiah having come. And so we get that grace upon grace kind of life of of the assurance of, of knowing that Jesus has come and paid for our sin once and for all. We get the power of God Himself, the Spirit poured out upon us to help us keep trusting Jesus. There's some differences, But there's also a lot of similarities, a lot of continuities between the old and the new. And the key one that Peter is bringing up here is that we are the people of God, just like the Israelites were the people of God. Who they were called to be, we are called to be. Just like them, we are chosen by God. We are called out to God and we are conformed for God. And so just as you read back And look at how God miraculously delivered them, how God brought them together, how God started building a people in the world out of these people. We actually read right now that God's building work is continuing. And it's continuing with us. He's building His church with you and I as the bricks in His hands. 
sometimes we think that the Old Testament was kind of God's first attempt. It was God's plan A to try to right the world. But then it, it kind of it didn't really work, and so he kind of had to come himself begrudgingly in Jesus. And then it did work. Plan B, it worked. His second attempt was successful. He finally got it right. Well, no, in actual fact, the church is God's plan A continued. That God's plan for redemption has been consistent right throughout ever since he started and promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he's going to make a family. They were called to trust in the coming Messiah just as we are called to trust in the Messiah who has come. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. When you and I believe God, it is counted to us as righteousness. And so we are just one generation in one place of what God has been doing ever since he made these promises of building his family in the world. And so as you hear that, as you read this, can you sense the the beauty in this? Can you sense the glory that it is to be a part of what God is doing in the world? For all the brokenness in the church, which mimics the brokenness in our surrounding world, which mimics the brokenness that we sometimes cringe at when we read it in the Old Testament, we're a part of something right now that's beautiful. And so don't let the basketball court fool you. Don't let what feels mundane fool you. You're part of something that's amazing. It's miraculous. It's weighty. It's meaningful. The glory that God has gotten as He builds a family is is still in its infancy because God's going to continue to build a family from every tribe, from every nation, people of every tongue. God's going to build a people and we're all going to come together and gather together at a point and then God's glory will continue forever and ever and ever. We are God's holy people. We are God's royal priests. We are God's living house. We are God's spiritual house. And it's because of this reality, this meaning, that this is why it can be so jarring when we encounter the brokenness of the church. I've shared before the the story that I've heard of a a Christian once being stranded alone on a deserted island. And he did the whole Tom Tom Hanks castaway kind of thing and survived by uh, themselves for several weeks. Uh, And then they got rescued. And upon seeing the setup that this survivor had come up with, uh, the rescuers saw that he'd built three huts. And so they rescued this Christian guy. And and as they were kind of leaving in the helicopter, they turned around and said, hey, mate, what's with the three huts? What what were they there for? And he said, well, you know, the first one was where I lived. Uh, The second one was my church. And the third one was the church that I used to go to. (laughs) Author Tom Rayner once did a Twitter poll to find out what are are some of the cutting edge, what are some of the, the most crucial, important issues that are dividing the church today? And he came up with a list of 25, and of that list of 25, some of them included one church, which argued over the appropriate length of a worship pastor's beard, Uh, another where there was a discussion and argument over whether members were allowed to wear black t-shirts, since apparently black is the color of the devil, and then there was another where there was a disagreement over whether to use the term pot luck or pot blessing. It's a very, very Christian argument. You see, so often we miss the glory of what's happening right now. We miss the glory of the church. Yes, we're sinful. Yes, we are a mess. Yes, we will be underwhelming and disappointing. Yes, the church sometimes might move too slow. And other times it might move too fast. 
or it might be too loud, or other times it might be too quiet, or the church might have too many weird and quirky people, or it might not have not enough weird or quirky people, but the church is where God is at work in the world. The church, when we actually embrace who we are called to be biblically, when by the Spirit we live out who we are called to be biblically, the church is God's beacon of hope sent into the world that we might point people to Jesus. And that leads us to question number two. What is then the church to do? What is the church to do? There is glory in who we are and what are we here for? And I think we see from this passage two clear things. Uh, The first is that we are called as a church to pursue Jesus. Now, sometimes when we think of the, the idea of pursuing Jesus, it kind of rubs up against our theology of how we are saved. Because I know from my own story, I once as a you know, young teenager sat down and decided I would not be pursuing Jesus until I was in my mid-20s. And yet, praise God, God pursued me. God came after me and changed my heart that I would be able to serve Him. And we could go around this room and hear our testimonies of all different stories of how we came to know Jesus and and. Perhaps all of our stories would involve being pursued out of a life of kind of religiosity or moralism or legalism or kind of some some world living or, or living for the wrong thing and we find it's not satisfying and through those things, Jesus has been pursuing us. That all of our testimonies ring true with the story Jesus tells that the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. We've all been that one. Jesus has pursued us. But it's like an eternal game of tag. Because after Jesus has pursued us and called us into his family, it's our turn to pursue him, to run after him, to keep trusting in him and see him more at work in our life. And we see this assumption that Peter makes in the first line. He writes in verse 4, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As you come to Him, the Him is Jesus. As we come to Jesus, you see, we thought we had a come to Jesus moment. It turns out it's a come to Jesus life. Our whole life is coming to Jesus. And our lives now, individually, and our life as the church is about this, what Peter says, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The other apostle, Apostle Paul, he says to to offer up your lives as living sacrifices to God. We are called to offer our whole lives to Jesus. And so we pursue Jesus, as we heard about last week. I will be, you should be holy for I am holy. We pursue Jesus by conforming our character to His, our moral vision to His moral vision, our attitudes on all the categories of life to His. But together as a church, we're also called to pursue Jesus. Because Peter here is writing to a body of people, and he's writing to our body of people as well, laying out that we are called to come to Christ again and again and again. And so if you're going to get bored of coming to Jesus, then you're in the wrong church. Sorry. Because every Sunday, every gospel community, every time the Bible is open, my job, the, the, the first most responsibility on my job description is to point you to Jesus. It's to lead us and help us pursue Jesus. 
that you might come to him and lay down your burdens, cast all your anxieties, confess your sin, and take up his lightness, his righteousness, his forgiveness. Take up the peace of Christ. I was listening to a biography of uh, the famous 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon recently, and one quote of his, he says, I know one who said I was always on the old string, and he would come and hear me no more. But if I preached a sermon without Christ in it, he would come. Ah, he will never come while this tongue moves. For a sermon without Christ in it, a Christless sermon, a brook without water, a cloud without rain, a sky without a sun, a night without a star, oh Christian, we must have Christ. And so let's help each other pursue Christ together. When your friend is flailing, call them back to Christ. When someone needs comforting, comfort them with the reality that, that Jesus is the Emmanuel, the God with us. Jesus is with us even in this. When your brother or sister has fallen, pick them back up with the reminder of the mercy and grace of Christ. When someone seems to be kind of drifting, disinterested, well then like Jesus, we, we run after the one. We pursue Jesus. The second job of the church together is to proclaim Jesus. And this is where we get into the quotes that Peter brings up from the Old Testament. Because having told us who we are, he says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so Peter is telling these elect exiles that together they are to present and proclaim Jesus. And notice what he doesn't say, that Our job is not to save people. No, there's one saved. Our job is not to manipulate people. Our job is not to ensure people have or give a positive response. No, our job is to be who we are. And as we are who we are, we will proclaim Jesus. Through our words, through our witness, we proclaim Jesus. As I said, I was down at City on a Hill, Geelong this week, uh, helping at an Acts 29 assessment conference. And uh, recently, the, the pastor of City on Hill Geelong, Andrew Grills, uh, he broke both of his wrists at the same time. And he broke them, true story, falling out of a wheelie bin. It's a great story. But it did make me think about the own, my own uh, kind of tragedy with a wheelie bin. You know, wheelie bins can be incredibly helpful and at the same time incredibly harmful. You know, if you get your lawn maintenance hat on and you, you know, looking after the garden, that wheelie bin, you know, rolling it out back and then out front, it cleans up everything. It's fantastic. It's very, very helpful. But there are sometimes where the same thing is very harmful. There was a time when I was lying in bed early one morning and I heard that dreaded noise. And I thought, uh oh, did I put the bins out last night? And you got that kind of second-guessing moment in yourself about whether you put out the bins. And at this moment, I realized I didn't put out the bins. 
And so I got half dressed, so I was half decent because I was going to make a run for it. And so I got to the bins and I ran them out the gate. And this is like, we lived on a main road at this point. This is, this is like a main road, Blackburn Road. Uh, and I've got these two bins. And then I had another second-guessing moment because the truck had only just passed our house. It was still within distance. And so instead of kind of throwing in the towel, I decided, no, I'm going after it. We had two little kids at home. This bin was full of nappies. And so I take both bins and I run straight down the hill. And running down a hill with two wheelie bins is not, not the best thing to be doing when you're half-dressed at 6 a.m. in the morning, or at any time, for that matter. And so I'm running, but I'm making it, and I'm running fast. And it turns out that the footpath on Blackburn Road is not the smoothest footpath in the world. Because as I was sprinting at full pace, I lost control. But I did not lose the wheelie bins. And so I held on to those bins, and I slid along the concrete as if I'd scored the winner in the 94th minute of a World Cup final, and my knees and my hands were cooked, but I made it to the truck. You know, thank you, thank you. I then had to go to the doctor after it, but, uh, you know, wheelie bins can clean up or they can crush. And here's the tenuous link. Peter is saying that Jesus as the cornerstone actually has a similar effect, that for some, Jesus is the cornerstone and he's the center of their life. He holds up the whole, our whole life. He is chosen and precious. He takes our shame. He removes our guilt. He cleanses us of our sin. He becomes the hero, the cornerstone of our life. Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is so precious to us that if we have him, he is all we need. And for others, for those who reject Jesus, well, Jesus is also a stone for them, but he's a stone over which they stumble because he exposes their sin all the more. He triggers their unbelief, shows their hardness of heart, reveals the way that people try to justify themselves. And then we try to get self-protective to show that we're all good without him. And so Peter brings this up because our job is not to determine, well, who's going to respond in what way? And God doesn't tell us how people are going to respond. God tells us simply to proclaim Jesus, to point to the cornerstone. And sometimes when we point there, people are going to be struck with godly repentance, and other times people are going to be struck with vitriolic hostility. But the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. Our job is to proclaim Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do as a church. We're going to pursue Jesus and proclaim Jesus. And you might have heard of this before. In other words, we're going to know Jesus and make Jesus known. And so what does this actually mean for you, for me, for us? How should 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 10, make a difference in your life? I've got three encouragements for you. And the first seems an obvious application of what Peter is saying here to these elect exiles. Number one, you should commit to a local church. Commit to a local church. It was very applicable last week when we heard that we actually need to love one another with a pure heart, love our brothers and sisters. That to, to love anyone, you, you kind of actually need to be known by them, to, to, to be in their life. But it's highlighted even, the more, even all the more now with the glorious picture that Peter is painting of the church. 
And so it's right then that as he paints this picture of, of you know, globally what, what God is doing with the, with the capital C church, that we commit to a local expression of that glorious reality, to commit to a local church. Now, many of you have, and it's our church. And to that I say yes and amen. Well done. We're part of the family, the body here. But there is also a growing percentage of Christians who are perpetual attenders of church services, but never quite committing to the people, to the community of the church. And so what I don't mean is for you to commit to the 9 a.m. or commit to the 11 a.m. or commit to the 4 p.m. service, as if you, you, you know, commit to coming to an event every week. No, I mean for you to commit to a people, to commit to a community, to be known by them and know them, to serve them and be served by them, to pray for people and be prayed for by them. You see, many of us are crying out for meaning and purpose in our lives. And we could throw ourselves in a lot of causes that we put before us in very persuasive ways to try to get us to throw our time and energy behind it. But the main thing that God is doing right now in the world is building His church. Let me say that again. The main thing, the primary thing that God is doing in the world right now, here and all around the world, He's building His church. He's building His church. And so let me encourage you to throw yourself into the risky relational blessing that it is to be in a local church. Now, we need you. God wants you to. And your life with Jesus will will just remain in perpetual adolescence if you don't put yourself in a place where you can be sharpened as iron sharpens iron, where you can be stretched where you can be rebuked if need be, where you can be built up, where you can be comforted, where you can have people alongside you to mourn when you mourn, to weep when you weep, to celebrate when you celebrate, to be a part of a community who are pursuing Jesus together. Because everyone who has God as their father has the church as their mother. And so commit to a local church. If not our church, please find a church that is going to pursue Jesus, that is going to help you pursue Him, help you grow up in the Scriptures and help you proclaim Him in your life. Commit to a local church. Number two, contribute to the life of the church. You know, it can be very popular to, to bag the church. It's an easy target because we do, do do a lot wrong. We are very underwhelming. If you've got a circle of Christian friends on Facebook or Twitter, you've probably seen, maybe even joined in, and how easy it is to bag the church. And there's an entire industry, the Christian publishing industry, that is built on finding flaws to release the next book to tell you how to do better than what everyone else is doing in the church. And so you can read Simple Church, Sticky Church, Center Church, Vintage Church, Total Church, Disappearing Church, Reappearing Church. I've read all of those books. They actually exist. But instead of throwing stones at the church... God wants us to actually recognize that we are one of the stones that He Himself is using to build the church. And so certainly there is a place for criticism. There is a place to point out the ways that any particular local church can be better. But even better than that is to point out those things and then also be part of the solution to build a better church, to grow the church, to strengthen it. 
And so Peter here labels us as living stones who are to be built up into a spiritual house. And he uses the, the, the language of, of the Old Testament by calling us a, a royal priesthood. And so the priesthood of all Christians tells us that there isn't only one priest in the room right now. That all of us who are trusting in Jesus are priests. And therefore, as, as the rest, other parts of the New Testament make very clear, we've all been gifted in ways that I aren't gifted and in ways in the people next to you aren't gifted. And, and the eye can't say to the arm, hey, I've got no need of you. Because all of us have been uniquely wired and gifted in ways that we bring a unique contribution to the church. And so I'm under no delusions that our local church couldn't also be analyzed to bring out a whole host of ways that we are flawed and disappointing that we could add to the list that I shared at the top. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer once wrote, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. He's saying that when you want the perfect community, and it needs to be better in all these different ways, you actually end up inevitably destroying it because you can't put up with the fallen, fallible, flawed people who actually make up the Christian community. Half-hearted people, sinful people, broken people, people like you and me who actually make up the church. But the point is that God uses broken people to build a broken church, to reach broken people, to then use broken people, to build a broken church, to reach broken people and so on and so forth. And you are one of those people he's reached. And you are one of those people he wants to build the church with. You are one of them. And if you stay at a distance, then the church, the building, is going to have a hole in it. Because there's a brick that was meant to be there that isn't being put there. And so I encourage you to contribute your time, your energy, your perspective, your service, to serve the people around you. Now, speaking for our own local church, we need all the help we can get. We're still in nappies as a church. We need to grow up and get stronger. I need more feedback to be a better preacher. We want to be a welcoming church, so we need more people to host and and welcome on a Sunday. We want to raise up the next generation and equip them to know Jesus and make Jesus known. So we actually need people to to be downstairs when we're running and, and teaching little kids about Jesus. There are hundreds of different ways you can contribute to building the church. And God's put you here. And so He might be trying to tell you something. So, Commit to a local church. Contribute to a local church. And then number three, celebrate communion with us. And so we're going to actually action this one in, here and now. We're going to do this one right now. But it is very meaningful off the back of this text to, to be celebrating communion together because we are, by doing it, both pursuing and proclaiming Jesus through the gifts of bread and juice or wine today. Again, don't let the little plastic cup or the cracker that came in it, fool you. Something glorious is about to happen as we share in communion together. Because what we're doing when we share in communion is that we are proclaiming Christ, His his death to to each other. His body given for us. His blood poured out for us. Communion is a, a tangible sign of our union with Christ. That once we were not a people, now we are a people. Once we hadn't received mercy, now we have received mercy. And it's a tangible sign of the glory and the garbage of the 
people we are, the people that God is making us, the glory and garbage of the church. Because it reminds us that we are so sinful that Jesus had to come as the cornerstone who himself would be crushed on our behalf for our sin as he died in our place. And at the same time, it tells us that yet we are so loved that Christ willingly came to lay down his life, to be crushed for us in our place so that we could be reconciled with God, so that we could receive eternal life, so that we could join his church, his family, and be a part of what he's building. And so what we're doing today is is seeing how God brought us together as a people. And so as we come to partake of this, uh, let me remind you that this is a, a family meal. I want to invite all of you to come and partake, but only do so if you have understood the life, death, and resurrection and how it applies to you. Because to participate in this moment is to say, I'm in. I'm in with Jesus, His life, death, resurrection. It was for me. And it's also to say, I'm in with the church. Christ died for the church and gave Himself up for her, the Scripture says. Come and be a part of the people that Christ died for. Come and be a part of the people that Christ gave up His body for and shed His blood for. And if you've done that, then come joyfully. Come and celebrate communion with us and let's keep on celebrating whether we're sharing in the elements together or sharing in what it is to be part of the community of the church and so feel free to get your uh, elements ready and i'm going to pray for us as we prepare our hearts to receive the elements let's pray gracious god we thank you for your son we thank you for jesus your eternal word our sufficient saviour the victorious risen Lord. We praise you for what you have done for us in him, that he is our great high priest who has gone before us to lay his life down as a atoning sacrifice for our sin, that he is the cornerstone of the church that you are building right now, right here and right around the world. Lord, from this text, Lord, we pray that you would help us love the church. Help us love your people. Help us pursue Jesus. Help us proclaim Jesus. Help us commit and contribute to the life of the church. We thank you that you are doing and you are active in building your church right now. And now, Lord, we don't presume to come to your table trusting in our own righteousness, but in your great mercy. We thank you for these gifts, this bread or cracker, this wine and juice. We pray that those who eat and drink of them in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and in obedience to our Savior Christ might be partakers by faith of his body and blood. And so, Lord, right now, would you renew us by your Holy Spirit, unite us in the body of your Son, and bring us into the joy of your eternal kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.